Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Questions mounting about the police response to the school shooting in Texas. We hear from a victim's father and from law enforcement. Democrats calling for stricter gun laws after the recent school shooting. Some Republicans may be willing to consider their demands. Milk banks are an option for mothers who are unable to breastfeed amid the baby formula shortage. These milk banks depend on milk donors, and they are seeing a sharp increase in demand. Ahead of Memorial Day, the public will be allowed entry to the plaza of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It's only the second time in 100 years that the public will have access. As the community of Uvalde, Texas, mourns the loss of 21 innocent lives, questions are mounting over the timeline and the police response. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. They said they rushed in and and all that. We didn't see that. Javier Cazares is the father of a 10-year-old girl who was killed in this week's mass shooting in Texas. During the standoff, parents pleaded with police to go inside the school. Cazare says police didn't act fast enough to save his daughter. I, I didn't see no preparedness at all. I mean, they, as soon as they heard that gunshot, they should have rushed in. God knows how long my little girl or the rest were, were like that. Cazares also said the doors to the school should have been locked because illegal border crossers often bail out of cars nearby. Locked doors could have locked the shooter. We have bailouts all the time. You know, they, they should have known those, those doors should be locked. Cazares says he's speaking out because he wants the public to know more could have been done to save his daughter. I promised my little girl on, on <laughs> well, I saw her at the hospital. And I promised her, you know, her, her, um, her death is not going to be, you know, in vain. Texas law enforcement official Victor Escalon says it appears the school doors were unlocked and the gunman walked in the school without any confrontation. It was reported that a school district police officer confronted the suspect that was making entry. Not accurate. He walked in unrestructed initially. Escalon says police arrived four minutes later. But it took another hour before Border Patrol entered the classroom and shot the gunman dead. Reporters asked why police didn't move in sooner. Escalon called it a tough question. Once we interview all those officers, what they were thinking, what they did, why they did it, the video, the residual interviews, we'll have a better idea. Could anybody have gone there sooner? Police armed response expert Chet Eberson said Thursday that officers' priority in a mass shooting is always to neutralize the shooter. Once that person is um, apprehended or neutralized, then immediately first aid uh, comes in the first responders to rescue and give aid to those that have been subjected to gunfire. Epperson didn't address the police response in Uvalde specifically, but he said training in mass shooting situations is key. If, if a department has a policy, but they never train on it. Well, I wouldn't expect a good outcome. There's going to be some slips and falls. The White House says President Biden and the First Lady will visit Uvalde Sunday to grieve with the community. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. As tributes were paid, stories began to emerge about the lives of Uvalde's 21 victims. What's more, a literal broken heart. The husband of one of the teachers who died in the Texas shooting was confirmed to have died of a heart attack, and the family says the cause was grief. 
Across the street from Uvalde's municipal courthouse, memorial sites were set up to remember the 21 lives lost in the school shooting. Flowers, candles and prayers didn't take away the grief. I'm devastated. I'm devastated. There is no words to express how it feels. Maria Alvarez said her great-granddaughter attends Robb Elementary School. She was lucky to have survived the shooting, but other families endured overwhelming losses. Vincent Salazar said his 11-year-old daughter, Layla, loved to swim and dance. Her brothers described her as being sweet, positive, and energetic. The family first learned of the shooting by a text message from the school district. I tried to go over there to the school, but I just couldn't. They weren't letting anybody through anywhere. And then I got another text message saying to pick up the students at the Civic Center downtown. It wasn't until late evening they were told Layla was one of the victims. Uh, they asked us for DNA, and uh, we gave them that, and about an hour later they confirmed it for us. Ten-year-old Maite Rodriguez started out with straight Fs when classes went on Zoom during the pandemic. But this year she made the honor roll with all A's and all B's. Her family explained the day of her death should have been a day of triumph for her. She worked hard. I only encouraged her. And I helped her when I could, but it was her. And she worked her way up to A, B honor roll. The day of, she was actually receiving a, another award. Tragedy extended to the family of Irma Garcia, one of the fourth grade teachers who died protecting students. Her husband, Joe Garcia, passed away on Thursday from an apparent heart attack. The family said on GoFundMe that Joe died of grief after losing the love of his life of more than 25 years. Nonprofits are making donations to each of the families affected by the shooting. Nothing will take away and replace their child. We understand that, but with a significant donation, we know that a lot of them are not going to be able to work, make car payments and stuff like that. So that's what we're going to do. Therapy dogs are also invited to Uvalde in hopes of bringing some comfort to the community. Democrats are demanding stricter federal gun laws after the school shooting in Texas that left 19 fourth graders dead. Some Republicans are willing to find common ground. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. In the aftermath of the Texas elementary school shooting, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's hoping for a bipartisan solution directly related to the facts. McConnell has instructed Senator John Cornyn to negotiate with some Democrats, including Senators Kirsten Sinema and Chris Murphy, in working out a compromise bill. Outrage. McConnell emphasized he's not pushing for legislation that would advance a partisan Democrat agenda, but instead find a legislative solution directly related to the circumstances of the Uvalde school shooting. Democrats will need support from at least 10 Republicans to overcome the Senate's 60-vote filibuster. Senator Lindsey Graham has suggested a willingness to work with Democrats on a legislative response. Republican Senator Mike Rounds also said a bipartisan agreement could be reached. He indicated such a bill might not include new gun regulations at all and focus instead on providing additional funding for law enforcement to localities. Other prominent Republicans have rejected any efforts to concede to Democrats' demands on gun laws and place more attention on making schools safer. Senator Ted Cruz attended a prayer vigil in Uvalde, Texas to offer his sympathy and support to the community. Cruz was firm on his position when asked if it was time to reform gun laws. If you want to stop violent crime, the proposals the Democrats have, none of them would have stopped this. Some Democrats have expressed optimism that a compromise bill can be reached. When 
will it end? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he will continue to work with Republicans to reach an agreement. He has accused Republicans of being disconnected from the suffering of the American people. Too many members on that side care more about the NRA than they do about families who grieve victims of gun violence. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott canceled his planned appearance at the annual NRA convention and will instead speak at a press conference at Uvalde High School. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Texas police are facing more criticism after they changed key details of the response to the shooting. Law enforcement is now saying the gunman roamed the school grounds for about 12 minutes unchallenged. This contradicts statements saying an officer engaged with Ramos before he entered. Next, we hear from an expert on ways to prevent gun violence at schools. He's the executive director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Safe and Healthy Schools and a faculty member with the Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Please welcome Professor Otis Johnson at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for taking the time today, Professor. Happy to be with you. Based on your expertise, what can be done to prevent a tragedy like the mass shooting that happened at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas? Well, there are a number of realities that are coming apparent about this particular tragedy, but moreover, it's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. This is something that has happened repeatedly, and unfortunately, we lack a comprehensive policy approach to prevent these tragedies from occurring. My understanding is that the school system had a quite extensive security prevention policy. My thinking about this is that schools cannot do this alone, that these, these preventive measures are, are impactful, but they also need to be uh, supported by a broader approach to gun violence and, and gun safety at the, both the state level and the federal level. So some have responded to calls to arm teachers in hopes that this would reduce the amount of deaths that occur in these type of situations. What is your reaction to this, given that some people have said that this only invites more problems and doesn't really help the issue? I agree, um, and for a number of reasons. One, um, it's clear that even law enforcement, sometimes in, in uh, looking at uh, the, the incident that happened in Buffalo recently, uh, where there was an exchange with law enforcement. I believe that law enforcement officer lost his life that day. Even having law enforcement on the premises does not ensure safety. In fact, within a context of limited gun violence solutions and, and gun safety policies in place, those law enforcement officers' lives are in danger as well. My thinking is that over the years, and actually the data uh, show this, that we've increased the presence of law enforcement at our nation's schools to the point where over half of them have law enforcement there and close to 80% of high schools now have security or school resource officers there. And uh, despite those, those, uh, those measures, we've actually seen an increase in the number of injury and death related uh, outcomes um, uh, related to shootings, excuse me, um, on um, uh, schools in the last seven years. So for the last seven years, we've seen an increase in those metrics. And speaking of law enforcement officers in schools, according to Fox News, DPS said that there was a school police officer in the school and he got shot while he was exchanging gunfire with the shooter. Do you think that his presence was able to help the situation? Um, again, 
nationally, and, and yes, we can look to these individual events for clues as to how we can tighten the policy and implementation, which we understand will vary according to schools. And in this case, you know, um, an officer did risk their life in order uh, to protect those kids. But moreover, we should look to those data and, and recognize that law enforcement at schools is not the answer. And while some schools will need or, or might benefit from law enforcement being there, uh, we, again, need a broader, uh, comprehensive approach that um, allows those times when the school preventative measures fail um, to be uh, supported and, and, and buttressed, if you will, with a, a greater interest in gun violence solutions. And that could include many things such as um, uh, gun background checks, mental health um, um, uh, clearings, or, or at least in this case, the Social Security Administration should allow, uh, be allowed to transmit data to the FBI to make sure that um, these guns are not allowed to be in the hands of those who are not uh, mentally healthy. Professor Otis Johnson at Johns Hopkins University, thank you so much for shedding light on this issue. Thank you. Amid the current nationwide baby formula shortage, milk banks are helping mothers who are unable to breastfeed and need milk for their babies. And these milk banks are seeing a sharp increase in demand for breast milk. Here are the details. The Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes is seeing a sharp increase in demand for breast milk amid the baby formula shortage. This year has been just incredible. We, there's no way we could have anticipated the type of growth that we've seen since the uh, formula shortage began. Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes is the only accredited milk bank in Illinois and Wisconsin. Its program manager says there are many reasons that moms may not be able to provide human milk, so it's devastating for them to know that formula is no longer available. So the best thing that we can do is reach out to our donors and put out that call and hope that they answer, and they did, so that we are able to help. And that's, that's been really rewarding to see that, particularly for babies with really complex medical needs, we have been able to help, and we're really proud of that. Mothers with excess breast milk are donating to this milk bank. One of them is Hannah Shabesta, a mother to a toddler and an 11-month-old infant. She says she hopes to help other parents in desperate need during the formula shortage. Some people choose just choose formula, and that's wonderful. Um, it's been such a great option for families, um, and to all of a sudden have that option um, taken away must be horrifying. Um, so I'm so glad, like I said, I can just um, help even in the smallest way. It's something I can do. I know we're all looking for ways that we can um, help others now, and um, I'm grateful I can do a little bit. The Milk Bank says they hope this current formula shortage can raise awareness of milk banks. This situation, I guess the silver lining is that we're increasing awareness so that hopefully everybody now knows that milk banking is an option and moms who have enough will donate and moms who, who need us or families who need us will reach out so that we can offer help whenever possible. On Wednesday night, another shipment of baby formula by Nestle arrived in Pennsylvania from the European Union. And Abbott Nutrition expects to restart its shuttered plant on June 4th and begin shipping new formula to stores about three weeks later. About 500,000 additional cans of specialty baby formula are heading to the U.S. The Food and Drug Administration says the Neocate amino acid-based formula is coming from Danone Nutritia. It is given to children who have multiple food allergies or are allergic to milk. The FDA says it has been working with Danone to boost production since the formula shortage escalated in February. 
Once in the U.S., the formula will be distributed through direct orders, healthcare facilities, hospitals, and pharmacies. The FDA says it is also in discussion with other manufacturers and suppliers to get additional formula to the U.S. And coming up, the Justice Department will not charge the FBI agents who mishandled the USA Gymnastics Larry Nassar sex abuse scandal. That's despite admitting they mishandled the case. And a report from Human Rights Watch says online learning software tracks students' data. In many cases, children's personal information is then sent to third-party advertising companies. Find out more right here on NTD News. Voters in Wisconsin are suing over the use of illegal ballot drop boxes. Attorneys from the Thomas More Society filed the, laws, the complaints on behalf of voters in Green Bay, Kenosha, Madison, Milwaukee, and Racine. The case is connected with donations made by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife. A Thomas More Society attorney says the money was used to target specific populations to vote. He said the donations had little to do with keeping voters safe from COVID-19, as was purported. Amid a wave of controversy over the election grants, a Zuckerberg spokesman said in April that the billionaire activist won't be participating in such grant-making this year. The legal complaint argues the case is urgent because the city used the drop boxes in the November 2020 elections and may use them again in the future. The lawsuits follow the Wisconsin Elections Commission's refusal last month to investigate the use of the boxes and after a court found in January that the drop boxes were illegal. A Charles Manson follower convicted in a 1969 killing spree was found suitable for parole. 74-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel was previously denied parole 14 times for the slayings of pregnant actor Sharon Tate and four other people in 1969. This and what prosecutors said was an attempt by Manson to start a race war. Krenwinkel wrote the words helter-skelter on a wall using the blood of one of their victims. The parole decision will now be reviewed, which can take up to 120 days. If the decision is approved, California Governor Gavin Newsom will have 30 days to review it and either reverse the decision or allow it to stand. Los Angeles County prosecutors weren't at the parole hearing to object. That's a policy under District Attorney George Gascon. It states that prosecutors should not be involved in deciding whether prisoners are ready for release. Governor Newsom has previously rejected parole recommendations for other followers of Manson who died in prison in 2017. The Justice Department is sticking to a previous decision not to charge two former FBI agents who mishandled an investigation into convicted sex offender Larry Nassar. Despite the decision, the Justice Department admits agents did not properly handle the investigation. It also says the decision does not reflect approval or disregard of the conduct of the former agents. Nassar is the former doctor of the USA Gymnastics national team. Allegations of Nassar's abuse were reported to the FBI Indianapolis field office by the president of USA Gymnastics in 2015. A report by the Justice Department's watchdog found local agents failed to respond with the urgency that the allegations deserved and required. Furthermore, the report found that two FBI officials lied during their interviews to cover up or minimize their errors. Nassar was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. He was named in hundreds of lawsuits by female athletes who said he abused them. 
Kids all over the country depended on virtual learning during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there may have been more to that time online than just math lessons and science classes. Millions of students were tracked by educational apps and websites without their consent. In many cases, that information was shared with third-party advertising companies like Google and Facebook. All of this information came out this week in a report by Human Rights Watch. The advocacy group looked into over 160 online learning tools in various countries. The report found that nearly 90 percent had data practices that, quote, risked or infringed on children's rights. This includes everything from monitoring kids to collecting information on their identity, location, online activity, and information about their family and friends. It's an issue the Federal Trade Commission has had in its sights even prior to the report, announcing plans last week to crack down on companies illegally surveilling children during online learning. Law enforcement officers in Texas have been able to recover 70 missing children over the past month. Some of the children had been victims of sex trafficking or physical abuse. This was an operation involving multiple agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security and the Texas Department of Public Safety. The operation ran from late April to mid-May. The officers rescued the children in El Paso, Midland, Ector, and Tom Green counties in West Texas, as well as in Colorado and Mexico. Authorities say some of the children had been runaways and many were lured away by online predators. The children they rescued were as young as 10. An official says when children feel secluded at home, some of them will go out and meet people from online without realizing these individuals are trying to harm them. The Justice Department Inspector General has published a new memorandum. It highlights concerns over a lack of FBI policy, specifically about child sexual abuse material and other contraband material shared among employees. The IG issued the memorandum after investigation into an FBI employee. That employee had emailed images believed to contain probable child sexual abuse material. They sent the material over a secure FBI email system to a prosecutor involved in a criminal case. Multiple FBI employees, including the subject of the investigation, told the watchdog that child sexual abuse material should not be sent by mail. One FBI Inspection Division employee told the watchdog that images like that should be sent through the FBI's closed network system. It's designed for sending these types of images to other FBI field offices or to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But the watchdog said none of the FBI employees could point to a written policy that specifically prohibits sending such material by email. An employee also said emailing such material creates a risk it will be seen by unauthorized individuals. The FBI agrees and says it will create a standard operating procedure to address the matter. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, high gas prices are making many families rethink their Memorial Day weekend travel plans, but an estimated 39 million Americans are still expected to travel either by car or by other means of transportation. And the Lincoln Memorial celebrates 100 years. The memorial honors the 16th president and has been host to many history-changing events. Find out more right here on NTD News.
A rare opportunity ahead of Memorial Day to remember those service members who made the ultimate sacrifice. This Saturday, visitors to Arlington National Cemetery will be allowed to place long-stemmed flowers at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The tomb has been the final resting place for America's unidentified service members since 1921. This is only the second time in the past 100 years that the public is allowed on the tomb's plaza. Last year on Veterans Day, visitors were allowed to place flowers in honor of the tomb's centennial. The event was so well received that Arlington National Cemetery decided to do it again. It truly connects everyone to those who gave their lives and their identities you know, for us. And so we wanted to find a way to allow the public to again lay flowers at the graveside of these soldiers. So that will be happening all day on Saturday, prior to Memorial Day. We will have flowers here available for people or they can bring their own long stem flowers. Flowers of Remembrance pays homage to Decoration Day, which later became known as Memorial Day. The holiday originated at Arlington National Cemetery in May 1868 when citizens placed flowers on graves to honor the fallen. Approximately 400,000 service members and their eligible dependents are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. To travel or not to travel? That is the question many American families face this Memorial Day weekend. Surging gas prices are one of the main reasons people are staying home. Here are the details. According to AAA figures, the average gas price in the U.S. on Thursday hit $4.60 per gallon. And in California, which is home to the nation's highest gas prices, it topped $6 per gallon. But despite the high gas prices, millions of Americans are still planning to travel 50 miles or more away from home this Memorial Day weekend. We are forecasting about 39.2 million people are going to be traveling for this Memorial Day holiday period, which is about five days. And about 88% of those folks are going to be going by car. The number of estimated travelers is up 8.3% from 2021 and would be close to 2017 levels. But it would still be below pre-pandemic 2019 levels, which was a peak year for travel. AAA says they've never had a Memorial Day travel period where so many people are traveling by car while gas prices are so high. Despite these record high gasoline prices, we are expecting, based on what we're seeing for Memorial Day, that it's going to be a very robust travel period for summer. People just want to get out and go. Dan Johnson and his family are among those choosing to travel despite the high gas prices. They're going from Paoli, Pennsylvania to Boston. My wife's family's, uh, her sister's graduating from Tufts University in Boston, so we really didn't have a choice, and we just toughed it up, and, you know, whatever the gas price is, we have to, unfortunately, we have to pay for it. But, you know, we want to go visit our family, so this is the cost that's involved. But not everyone is willing to pay the price. For some people, the gas prices are exactly what's caused them to rethink their holiday plans. So as far as road trips, Memorial Day is coming up, and I am totally against it because, you know, you're going to spend more money getting there, paying for gas, than you actually are, you know, to enjoy your visit. Jim Burkhardt, head of oil market research at S&P Global, says he wouldn't expect much relief this summer at the pump, and that this is especially true if Americans drive in great numbers, which is expected to happen. Planning a summer vacation? Delta Airlines says it's looking to cut about 100 flights a day from its schedule. Delta says the reason is to, quote, minimize disruptions and bounce back faster when challenges occur. The cuts will happen between July 1st and August 7th, mostly in the U.S. and Latin America. Thursday's announcement comes as the company says it's battling everything from weather and air traffic control issues to problems with vendor staffing and employees getting COVID-19. 
JetBlue is also trimming its summer schedule with plans to cut up to 10% of its flights. And Alaska Airlines reduced its schedule by about 2% through June. The Lincoln Memorial is turning 100 next Monday, May 30th. The site has become a symbol of America and witnessed many significant occasions. A century of unity will now be counted as one of them. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. May 30th, 2022 marks 100 years since the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. The memorial honors the 16th president and was constructed to highlight his role as the great uniter. The designer, Henry Bacon, drew inspiration from Greek Doric temples. Inside the memorial is a marble statue of Lincoln by sculptor Daniel Chester French. The design called for it to be elevated above the reflecting pool and above the surrounding landscape. Um, and the landscaping that you see, the hill that it's on, was created after the, uh, the memorial was created. Mike Litters from the National Park Service says he believes the Lincoln Memorial is a unique landmark. It has evolved beyond a memorial for Lincoln to become a backdrop for national celebrations, expressions of First Amendment rights, and civil rights demonstrations. Starting in 1939, for example, we see Marian Anderson give a concert on Easter morning here after being denied access to Constitution Hall due merely to the, the color of her skin. Of course, Martin Luther King delivers what is arguably the most famous speech in American history from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, during the march uh, on Washington for jobs and freedom. Every year, more than 8 million make the pilgrimage to visit the Lincoln Memorial, making it the most visited memorial in the nation's capital. The National Park Service is holding special events and programs this month to honor the former president and this neoclassical temple. Among the thousands of visitors who come here every day, it's very easy to get a sense of awe and inspiration from those that climb the steps to, to the chamber. While it's bustling and, and full of activity outside, inside the chamber, there's almost universally a hushed reverence, uh, a, a, a quietness about it as people gaze upon the statue and move to, to, to the two walls to, to, to read the, 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 the speeches that are engraved there. The memorial uses materials from all across the nation, which symbolizes unification after the Civil War. There are the stairs made from Massachusetts granite, the statue made from Georgian marble, the exterior walls of Ewell marble from Colorado, and the ceiling tiles from Alabama. The Lincoln Memorial is open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Summer barbecues can heighten the risk of infection from salmonella, a foodborne bacteria. Here's a look at the dangers and how to avoid them in the summer months ahead. A recent nationwide recall of select Jif peanut butter and an increasing number of products that contain the affected peanut butter is due to a possible salmonella contamination. The JM Smucker Company voluntarily issued the recall on May 20th, advising consumers to dispose of products under the recall. Full recall information can be found at FDA.gov. The CDC estimates salmonella bacteria, which can be spread by raw or undercooked foods or cross-contamination in food preparation and production, cause more than 1.3 million infections and 420 deaths in the U.S. every year. Symptoms to watch for include diarrhea, fever, and stomach cramps. They usually begin six hours to six days after infection and last four to seven days. 
With more Americans hitting the grills this Memorial Day weekend, the U.S. Department of Agriculture advises outdoor chefs to be particularly vigilant with raw meat and poultry to avoid foodborne bacteria like salmonella. Wash hands frequently, use a food thermometer to cook items to a proper temperature, avoid cross-contamination by keeping meat and poultry separate from fruits and vegetables, and store leftovers safely. Tossing perishable foods left at room temperature for more than two hours, less if out in the sun. Just ahead, the Russian Black Sea Fleet blockades the port of Crimea, crippling the country's export of essential goods, including grain and oils, as the war in Ukraine continues. And UK fish and chip sales are under threat due to the rising costs of sunflower oil and codfish. Inflation and the Ukraine war have led the UK to look for substitute ingredients. All that and more right here on NTD News. The Russian Black Sea Fleet is cutting off Ukrainian seaports. With boats unable to leave and shipping ground to a halt, the blockade is crippling the country's essential goods exports, including grain and oils. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Businessmen like Andrei Bazuk say they are feeling the pressure amid the blockade. All boat traffic was completely halted, fishing boats included. Boats from northwestern Crimea parked there with navigation forbidden. On May 18, 2022, we got permission to sail in order to collect our fishing gear that had been out in the sea since the 24th of February due to the special operation. We don't know what's going to happen next. At least 70 vessels are blocked at Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. Up to 95 percent of them are international. We had 100 tons of flatfish and brill projected for 2022, and that's only a part of the whole quota for the Republic of Crimea, which is 352 tons. So the company is suffering losses. People are distressed and forced to look for another job during this time. Ukraine is losing millions of dollars due to the export issues, while the failure to deliver essential goods by sea has put world food security at risk. We are talking about the export of grain crops, first of all, and vegetable oil, sunflower seed oil. We know how important it is for the global food balance. Very important. Hugely important. Grain traders like Vitaly Lavrov have had to find new routes. While we used to have about a 6 million ton turnover via ports and other transportation hubs, right now we are at 600,000 to 700,000 monthly. That is everything we are managing to move on the ground and via Danube ports. Hundreds of ships have also lost the chance to set sail in Crimea. With boats not able to leave, fishing businesses on the peninsula have been suffering and people have been forced to look for other work with ships not able to set sail. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. One third of fish and chip shops in Britain are struggling because of the soaring prices of cod and sunflower oil. In some places, one portion costs $14 now, which means some people find it cheaper to dine in restaurants. The industry is caught in a perfect storm of post-pandemic inflation and the Ukraine war. NTD's Anna Rodriguez has more. At West London's hooked fish and chips, shop owner Buddy Singh is struggling to keep the tills ringing as the British stable is hit by skyrocketing inflation. So we're finding it a struggle to keep our prices reasonable and competitive compared to other fast foods that are in the area. Um, and we've actually seen a decline in our fish sales 
and customers walking through the door. In just a year, the price of cod and haddock is up 75%, sunflower oil is up 60%, and the butter and the packaging are up around 40%. In the seaside town of Swanage in Dorset, people eating fish and chips are noticing the higher price. I mean, it's all right for me to go in there and get one portion for myself, but that was £11 just for one person. <laughs> so, many, so can you imagine, you know, you've got a group of five or six... That's, an ex that's probably more expensive than going to a restaurant. 73-year-old builder Malcolm Petherick worries that the changes he has seen over his lifetime might result in Britain losing its iconic chippies. Years ago, when I was growing up, it was a poor man's meal. Now, just bought two lots of fish and chips, 23 quid. So, you know, what family can afford that? The National Federation of Fish Friars said fish and chip shops were facing their biggest ever crisis. I'm getting daily phone calls that people are worried that they're going to go out of business and they're struggling and looking for help. And It's very difficult to give them any comfort because it is going to be a long-term problem. Um, so there's quite a lot of businesses that are going to struggle through this. We've always said probably about a third of, of fish and chip shops will probably go over the next five years. Because fish and chip shops were already facing rising prices in their supply chain from post-pandemic inflation and rising fuel prices. Its difficulties are being exacerbated by the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has sent cooking oil, fertilizers and flour prices higher. The government is working to substitute it with other vegetable oils, for instance, extra rapeseed shipments from Australia after a strong harvest there. Anna Rodriguez, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Russia and the Chinese regime stopped the UN from imposing more sanctions on North Korea. The move comes after North Korea tests three missiles. And Australia's new foreign minister expressed concern about the security pact between the Solomon Islands and China, a possible sign of Beijing's expansion into Pacific countries. We'll have more for you after the short break. China and Russia on Thursday vetoed a resolution to impose more U.N. sanctions on North Korea. The U.S. drafted that resolution in response to a string of missile tests this year. Thursday's vote was the first time the Security Council has split over the issue since 2006, when North Korea fired off its first nuclear test. Thirteen votes in favor, two votes against. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said she was disappointed but not surprised. We have been circulating a draft of this resolution for nine weeks. In that time, the countries vetoing this resolution have refused to engage on the text despite our commitment to inclusivity and flexibility during consultations. Among other restrictions, the resolution banned oil and tobacco exports to North Korea. The country's leader, Kim Jong-un, is a chain smoker. It also would have blacklisted a group of hackers called the Lazarus Group. For Russia's part, it wants to ease up on North Korea. According to its UN ambassador, sanctions are a, quote, dead end. 
As history has shown us, the paradigm of sanctions has still not been able to guarantee security in the region or resolve issues of missile and nuclear nonproliferation. The issue is now set to be taken up by the UN's General Assembly. Just a day before the vote, Pyongyang fired off three missiles. Washington has warned that a nuclear test could be next. Sri Lanka is facing an economic crisis. The country's prime minister said his government would dramatically slash spending and that he hopes to negotiate a relief package with the International Monetary Fund. Here's more. In an attempt to address the country's worst ever economic crisis, the prime minister of Sri Lanka says his government will be cutting down expenditure, cutting to the bone where possible, cutting to the bone where possible. In an exclusive interview, Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe told Reuters the drastic moves will slash funding for infrastructure projects and cut food and fuel subsidies. No, we, we know it's going to be difficult. That's why we are looking at uh, relief, at least a two-year relief program. Uh, there'll be interim budget. We cut off all the development work and put more money in. One is to uh, ensure that we can pay the higher interest rates and secondly, to ensure that there's more money for the affected people. But that alone won't do. He told Reuters the island will need assistance from other nations, particularly to ensure Sri Lanka has enough food. To meet rising costs, Sri Lanka will print rupees. We have no rupee revenue, and now we have to uh, print another trillion rupees. So you just you can see how inflation is... Uh, will have an impact here. These moves will almost certainly push already soaring prices higher and inflict even more pain on the population of 22 million people. Wickremesinghe said the country would soon appoint a new finance minister to lead negotiations with the International Monetary Fund for a loan package. He also said he hoped any unrest would not get out of hand, telling Reuters there will be, quote, hard days ahead and that protests are inevitable, adding, quote, it's natural when people suffer, they must protest. Australia's recently sworn-in foreign minister is expressing concern about the security agreement between the Solomon Islands and the Chinese regime. Uh, obviously, we've expressed our concerns publicly about the, the security agreement between Solomon Islands and China. And the reason we have is we, we think there are, as do other Pacific nations, we think there are consequences. Uh, we think that uh, it's important that the security of the region be determined by the region. Wang made the comments while on a diplomatic visit to Fiji. Her, her visit comes as the Chinese foreign minister tours island nations in the Pacific. The communist regime hopes 10 small countries in the Pacific will sign its security pact. The Solomon Islands security pact was signed last month. The U.S. State Department spokesman says the agreements could fuel tensions and increase concerns over Beijing's expansion into Pacific nations. Micronesia's president has already said his country will not join the pact because it would threaten regional stability and create other national security concerns. And coming up, camels are the latest mode of transport carrying tourists across a conservancy in Kenya as many look to become more environmentally conscious. And a three-day Star Wars celebration in Anaheim, California, features a special celebration for upcoming Lucasfilm television productions. Find out more after the short break. Buildings and landmarks in Sydney, Australia, were enveloped by a thick fog on Friday morning. 
Because of this, ferry services were canceled, drivers had reduced visibility, and iconic landmarks were blanketed by the fog. The fog looked surreal and affected most of the city. Even the Sydney Harbor Bridge and Sydney Opera House were shrouded from view. The country's Bureau of Meteorology issued a road weather alert warning of unsafe driving conditions. The fog began to lift by mid to late morning. Some ferry services have resumed, though the local weather bureau warned that the fog could make driving conditions dangerous. A Sydney airport spokesman said the fog has not caused any delays in air travel. Sydney is Australia's largest city and the capital of the Australian state of New South Wales. It's on Australia's southeastern coast. Camels are the latest mode of transport carrying tourists across Kenya's Soisambu Conservancy. It's a very different experience from the all-terrain vehicles typically associated with a safari and one that's better for the environment. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Camels are the latest mode of transport carrying tourists across Kenya's Soisambu Conservancy. It's a very different experience from the all-terrain vehicles typically associated with the safari. Tourist Adrian Allen traveled here from the UK with his family. For him, seeing the wildlife from the top of a camel is the best option. Even though an electric vehicle is good and it's where we're moving forward and we're trying to get away from diesel and burning engines, but it's still a vehicle and so you're still leaving a footprint, you're still leaving tracks and even and you can't get to certain areas when you with a vehicle. Getting to hard to reach areas is key to a great safari and camels can get closer to more elusive creatures like these giraffes grazing in the undergrowth. But for Bobong safaris, the main benefit is the low environmental impact. The camel is, is very good at eating invasive, invasive species, um, which helps the environment. Um, they don't leave a footprint when you walk with them, and they carry everything that you need on your trip. They don't drink very much water. Bobong Safaris is the only company to offer camel safaris in Soisambu Conservancy and Masai Mara National Park. The park charges $45 per person for a day trip or $200 for an overnight stay, including camping and meals. That works out cheaper than many vehicle-based safaris. The cost for a four-wheel drive tour is $180 a day, plus fuel costs and accommodation. As customers become more environmentally conscious, more companies want to offer vacations that don't harm the natural world. Ecotourism is not a hoax. It's real. This brings nature closer to us and us closer to nature. And the more close to your nature, the more you understand it, the more you like it, and the more, the less that you will not destroy it. The preservation of parks is essential to ensure that some species do not go extinct, and so that future generations can also enjoy going on safari. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A collection of treasures from one of the greatest polar explorers has sold at auction in London. The items are from Ernest Shackleton's Antarctica voyages more than a century ago. Shackleton was born in Ireland, but lived most of his life in England. He had a long-time fascination with Antarctica, he visited the world's southernmost continent four times. The items sold at auction this week included a bronze medallion awarded to Shackleton by the Chilean Historical and Geographical Society and one of the first books ever printed about Antarctica, which was edited by Shackleton. The highest price item was a map of Antarctica that Shackleton drew. It details what he learned from his 1914 expedition. 
The map sold for $220,000. The wreck of Shackleton's ship, HMS Endurance, was located in the Weddell Sea earlier this year, over 100 years after it sank. Shackleton and his crew escaped on foot and in small boats. A three-day Star Wars celebration is happening in Anaheim, California. It began on Thursday with a special event for upcoming Lucasfilm television productions. While today, the first episode of a new series starring Obi-Wan Kenobi launches online. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Ewan McGregor stars and executive produced Obi-Wan Kenobi and explained why he reprised the role from the prequel films without there being a script. It wasn't that they sent me a script and I said yes or no to it. We sort of developed the story together to a degree. It was going to be a movie at one point. Deborah Chow then came on and it became a TV series. And so with Deborah's brilliant direction, we, we, we ended up, I think, with a really good story, you know. Also retaking his role as Hayden Christensen, although now he is Darth Vader instead of Anakin Skywalker. This meant the Canadian actor had to don the iconic black suit for the role. I mean, it's it's such a you know incredible costume uh, and such an iconic costume that um, you put it on and you, you can't help but feel that you know. And then certainly walking out onto set and sort of seeing people's reactions uh, that's always been good fun and, and I've always really enjoyed that part of it. The second television series soon to be launched is Andor, which follows the history of Cassian Andor from the film Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Although the character died at the end of the film, he lives on again in two seasons of Andor, which is set to start streaming in August. The character is played by Diego Luna. I mean, I love the character, man. I, 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 I would play this character for a long time if possible, because uh, I, really, I, I really find a, a strong connection with, with this role. Uh, I think this role reminds us what we're capable of, you know? It's about the people taking control. It's about you understanding that what matters to you might matter to others. Aside from a poster and an appearance from Harrison Ford at the Lucasfilm panel, there were few film projects being showcased while TV projects remained in the spotlight. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Jonathan Searle, a child actor who starred in the 1975 classic Jaws, grew up to join the police force. He recently returned to the main filming site of Martha's Vineyards, Massachusetts, to take over the position of Oak Bluff's police chief. In Jaws, Searle plays the young boy who tricks beachgoers with fake shark fins. He was happy to share the experience on set, but he says he prefers to discuss community policing and public service and to pinpoint the causes of social problems. Searle began his career in law enforcement on the island in 1986, serving the Edgartown Police Department to this day. He followed in the footsteps of his father, who was also a police chief. During Searle's career, he led a program called Project Outreach to help islanders struggling with addiction. Searle said he thinks public service is ingrained in his DNA and leading by service is his enforcement mantra. But he was disappointed that the media coverage focused on his childhood moments in Jaws. He said he prefers to look forward and prepare for the future of the Oak Bluffs Police Department. The poodle from the movie War Pony has taken home the Cannes Palm Dog Award. The top prize was in the form of a red leather collar. The winner is a silver poodle named Brit. He won the Best Dog Award for his outstanding performance in the movie War Pony. Lead actors Riley Keough and Gina Gamble both call him a legend. In War Pony, Britt plays a dog named Beast. Also celebrated 
was the Dog and Marine Award. It recognizes the bond between humanity and canine. This year, the award went to a Ukrainian Jack Russell mind sniffer. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has honored him for his service during the ongoing war with Russia. How many varieties of rice are there and which ones are the healthiest? Let the debate begin. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Believe it or not, there are thousands of varieties of rice. We all know white rice, and then there's brown, black, red, purple, and more. Some people say rice isn't nutritious and it will lead to gaining weight. But remember this inexpensive staple food feeds more than half of the world's population. With the various colors, textures, and flavors, each rice is a little different. Your recipe determines the grain length required. Used in sushi, short rice has a chewy texture. Medium used in the Mediterranean has names like Aborio and Valencia. They are tender and stick together, ideal for palaf. Long grains include basmati, brown and jasmine. They stay separate and will be fluffy after cooking. Brown rice is considered healthier because the grain is unprocessed. It includes the bran, the endosperm and the germ. White rice is stripped of bran and germ, leaving the less healthy endosperm. Whole grains contain more fiber, therefore they will make you feel full faster and keep your digestive system healthy. Federal dietary guidelines recommend eating at least three ounces of whole grains a day. One cup of brown rice meets this requirement, white rice does not. Brown rice is richer in nutrients like magnesium and B vitamins. With the less common rices like red and black, they have similar amounts of fiber as brown. Black rice contains a special antioxidant that may improve cardiovascular health. That's according to research published in the Molecules Journal in 2020. If you are counting calories, then brown rice is slightly higher than white. Diabetics may need to limit their rice consumption due to calories. There are lower carb varieties, including wild rice, Healthy weights in adults and children can be expected when consuming whole grains, but don't write off white rice completely. Nikki Nyes is a dietitian with the Northwest Independent School District in Justin, Texas. She says it's key to mix white rice with a lean protein source, vegetables, and healthy fats like avocado, and that the difference between brown and white rice are small. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.